0: the book of Romans and our verse-by-verse study of this letter that God has used so mightily in the history of the Christian church, and the history of the world. And this morning we are returning to Romans 12, verse 9, and the command to abhor what is evil. Last time we were here, we spent almost the entire last message reflecting on an obvious and yet monumental and controversial truth from this little verse. We looked at the fact that good and evil really do exist. Uh, We saw last time that objective good and evil exist. They exist outside of us outside of our preferences, outside of our opinions, that good and evil are objective realities determined by God himself. And every attitude, and every thought, every word, and every deed of our lives is set against that objective standard of goodness and evil Before the holy eyes of God. And we have all fallen short of sticking to the good. Which is why we deserve judgment. The Lord Jesus Christ came and he lived a perfectly good life. And then he took the punishment that evil sinners deserve. So that all who trust in him. Are reconciled to God. We also saw last time that if you lose the reality of good and evil, if you make good and evil relative, if good and evil becomes a matter of preferences or cultural consensus, you ultimately lose the gospel. The gospel doesn't make sense in a world where there is no objective good and evil. And frankly, you lose God himself. Because one of the defining attributes of God is that he is good. And you can't have the God of the Bible without there being something that truly is called goodness. We also saw last time that the word Paul uses here, abhor, it's an emotional word in the Greek. It's an intense word. It's it's an earnest word word this command does not call us simply to disapprove of evil this is a command to hate evil we are to actively and intentionally oppose evil from the heart we are to be genuinely repulsed and disgusted by evil We are too long to see the day when evil will be no more. We are prone to minimize evil. We wink at it. We excuse it. We see evil in children and we laugh at it and call it cute. We see young men act immorally and we say, well, boys will be boys. Boys. We see politicians lie and cheat and we think, well, that's what politicians do. In our own lives, we blame others for our sins. We come up with excuses for our sins. We say it was just a little lie. Or, but he made me so angry. Or everybody else does it. And yet here is the clear message of God to us in this verse. We are to abhor what is evil. Now, my role as a pastor is to help us sense what Paul was saying here to believe it and then put it into practice. So first, I want to point out that we are to abhor evil because it is our God who abhors evil first and foremost. Evil repulses evil. The divine being of our God. Habakkuk one thirteen says that our God's eyes are too pure to see evil. He cannot look at wrong. It doesn't mean that God doesn't see sin. He does see sin. It only means that he will not continue to look upon it. He will not continue to tolerate it. Not one millisecond of evil before God's holy sight is tolerated by him. No, evil arouses his wrath. And in his patience and kindness and mercy, God postpones that wrath. He holds back that wrath. He withholds that judgment to give people a time to repent. But the wrath is already there. It's building like water behind a dam ready to be unleashed. Proverbs 15 9, the way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Psalm 7:11, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Our God, the true God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is a God who feels indignation. Every day, Psalm 711 says. Uh, Paul teaches us in Romans 2 that the postponement of God's judgment is an act of love, giving us an opportunity to repent and be saved. But if we do not, the blade of God's righteous wrath is already above our heads and nothing keeps it from coming down but His own will. Whenever he decides, you will breathe your last breath, or Jesus will come back, whichever comes first, and the horrific penalty of spiritual death that your sins have earned will come sweeping upon you. Mount Hermon, do you need evidence of how much your God abhors evil? Think about the doctrine of hell. I know it's not a pleasant thought. But hell is a reality and it exists because God abhors evil. There are billions of souls in that place this very moment who are justly experiencing an agony beyond words because of the heinousness of sin. Because our God does not trifle with sin. Sin arouses a pure and righteous hatred that is poured out from God upon those who practice such things. And this is what we all deserve because we are all evil. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? Then can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil? Prophet Jeremiah said. Speaking to people in their natural state. We're not talking about Christians after they've been born again. We're talking about unbelievers. We're talking about who we all once were. Who some of you in this room might still be. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah said. Isaiah says there is none who do good. No, not one. Verse after verse after verse reveals the Bible's indictment. All are evil. And God abhors evil. And therefore hell exists. And then there's another measure of just how much our God hates evil. Because even when God chose in his boundless love to save sinners and to lavish grace and mercy upon wicked rebels, he still would not let their sins go unpunished. We've talked about this before. Other religions do this. In Islam, it's a it's it's you you weigh your works, and if your good works outweigh your bad works, the bad works don't have to be punished. They just kind of get forgotten. Swept under the carpet because your good works outweigh them. But in Christianity, the true God, he does not let evil off the hook, even when he forgives his children. Even when he saves you and puts you on the path to heaven, he still says those sins must be dealt with. And so God sent his only beloved son as a real human being to bear in his real human soul. The weight of the agony of the hell that evil in every person who will ever believe on God deserves. Jesus felt upon himself the punishment for millions upon millions, billions upon billions of sins Committed by those who would ever believe on his name. We see God's holy hatred of evil at the cross. We see God's commitment to justice at the cross. We also see the final defeat of evil prefigured. Prefigured as Jesus bears the weight of it to the grave and then rises again, triumphant and glorious. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. To put it simply, at the cross, the fatal blow was given to evil and evil's days are numbered. We should also note that abhorring evil is essential to salvation. That is, there is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't abhor evil to at least some degree. And that's because you cannot become a Christian without acknowledging that to some degree you are abhorring the evil in your own life. Jesus came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The gospel call of our Lord is a call to repentance. But what is repentance? Repentance is coming to grips with sin in your own life. Hating the sin in your own life. Longing to be free of the guilt of the sin in your own life. Wanting to be set free from the power of that sin in your life. Repentance is renouncing your past life and all of its wickedness. Hating that wickedness. And wanting to follow Jesus. You cannot be at peace with your own sin and at peace with God at the same time because God and sin are polar opposites. The heart that has fallen in love with God by very definition must be opposed to sin for all that is sinful is opposed to God and all that is holy in God is opposed to sin. Proverbs 8.13 The fear of the Lord... Is the hatred of evil. The fear of the Lord, I reverence God, I honor God, I respect God, I tremble before God, I stand in awe of God. What does that look like? The hatred of all evil. Let's get very practical. At the end of our last sermon on this verse, I pointed out that there is something often missed in the commentaries. It's the fact that in the context of Romans 12, this command is being particularly given for us to obey as we live our lives together in the context of a local church. In other words, Paul's main point here is not that we need to abhor the evils of our secular culture. His main point is not that we need to hate the sins of our unbelieving society or hate the sins that we see in our city. Yes, you should hate those sins, but that's not the point here. His point is that we should abhor all evil, but particularly the evil that we see in our own lives and in our own church. He's talking about church life in these verses. Leon Morris does get it right in his commentary, he says, we should be clear that love is quite different from sentimentality. True love involves a deep hatred for all that is evil, because evil can never benefit the one who is loved there will be a special hatred for the evil in the one loved and the evil that touches the one loved. Paul was saying that the person who really loves with the fervor of Christian agape love will have a holy hatred for every evil thing. So to put it simply, if I love you, I will hate the evil that seeks to do you harm. If I love you, I will hate the evil that I see seeking to get a hold in your life. And if you love me, you will hate the evil that you see tempting me or seeking to get a hold of my life. We together as a church, because we love one another sincerely. Are to hate evil together and to fight evil together, to work against evil together And so how do we obey this command as a church? I'm going to give you four practical ways that we should do this, obey this command as a church. So number one, we should abhor evil by learning to identify and expose evil as evil. We should abhor evil by learning to identify and expose evil as evil evil. You can't abhor evil if you don't know what it is, if you don't recognize it. If you don't discern, oh that's evil. So part of the role of pastors in a local church is to lead the body in discovering what is good and what is evil. And pastors are not only to help the body identify sin, but pastors are called to help the church see the vileness of the sin. To see why it's to be thrown off as a deadly viper. As we preach verse by verse through the scriptures. As Sunday school teachers teach us and instruct us. As we meet on Wednesday night care groups or our senior adult fellowship or men's meetings and women's meetings. This should be part of the goal. That God would shine a light on wickedness that is trying to get a hold in our lives so that we can identify it and we can turn from it and we can hate it and say, no, I will not let that touch me. Pride. Bitterness. Lust. Greed. My job, Pastor Merle's job in part... Is to help you see those things as the disgusting, wicked, wretched realities that they are, so that you will want nothing to do with them. Yes, it is right for us to preach on sins like abortion. It is right for us to identify cultural sins. We could preach on homosexuality. We can preach on gender distortion. Whatever we see in our culture that is contrary to the will of God and pressing down upon us, yes, we'll need to talk about that from a biblical perspective. We need to learn together as a family how to think Christianly about those issues. But woe to us if we spend all our time talking about cultural sins like abortion and homosexuality while neglecting the more respectable sins That are actively seeking to do harm in this church right now. Pride is doing people in this room harm today. Sinful worrying. Is wreaking havoc on the lives of people in this room. And it may be that gossip. Envy. or Pornography. Or little white lies. Or habitual laziness are doing damage to people in this room, in this body. And here is how we love one another. We name these things. We identify these things. We expose them. Evil doesn't want to be called out. But love demands that we learn together as a church what these sins are and how contrary they are to the Holy Spirit and the character of our Lord. Love demands that we name them and that we hate them together. Number two. We should abhor evil by confessing the evil in our own lives and repenting of it. We should abhor evil by confessing the evil in our own lives and repenting of it. So there's two aspects of this. First, You help all of us when you are hating and turning from sin in your own life. Because remember, we're members of one another. What affects one part of the body affects the whole body. Your little toe might seem unimportant, but if it begins to hurt, if it begins to ache, if there's something wrong with it, suddenly it affects the whole body. It it even limits the whole body So the more that you are following Jesus and turning against sin in your individual life, the stronger you're making the body, the healthier you're making the body. In other words, I should fight sin in my life, not only for Jesus' sake, not only for my sake, but for your sake. And you should fight the sin in your life, not just for Jesus' sake and your sake, but for our sake. But then there's another aspect of this. I think it's even more powerful. We actually talked about this recently on Wednesday nights. James 5 verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I wonder, have you ever considered the wonderful sanctifying effects that God often brings about in our lives? When we share with one another how sin has messed us up. At care group. Sunday school. Over lunch in one another's homes. When we share. When we confess sins. That have wreaked havoc in our lives. We are protecting others in our church from the same evils. When a married couple. Shares how they started being dishonest with one another how the little white lies that they excused in their own minds began to build and grow, pulling them apart. And they give testimony about that. It, it teaches all the rest of us. Oh, is that in my life? Oh, I need to keep an eye out for that. I need, to be, I need to abhor that in my own life. Not too long ago, another Christian shared something very similar to this with me. She said that she had begun catching herself, not always telling the whole truth that she was editing the truth a bit when she talked to people, especially when she felt put on the spot, or especially when she found herself getting defensive. And she was convicted about this, and she had identified this sin, and she was working on this. And you know what God was doing in my heart as she's sharing that with me? I'm thinking, oh, do I do that? Oh, I need to keep an eye out for that in my life. I need to be careful that I don't fall into that same sin. I was being freshly reminded to hate the sin of dishonesty as this lady confessed something of her sin to me. I've heard older Christian parents whose children are now grown talk about the failures of sins, the failures and sins that plagued their parenting and they were warning the younger parents, don't make the mistake we made. Don't do this. This was wrong of us. We shouldn't have done this. And you know what? That was sanctifying. We're learning from them. Some in this room may have made some bad decisions when it comes to money. Maybe you gambled. Maybe you cheated on your taxes. Maybe you were stingy towards God. And the result was God's judgment on your finances or in some other area of your life. Sharing that lesson with the body, sharing the lessons you've had to learn the hard way can spare the rest of the body from having to learn the hard way. All of us are sinners. (laughs) In other words, all of us have lessons to share. All of us have testimonies, confessions of evil in our lives that we need to to share with one another, repent of before one another, so that we can love one another and say, Brother, sister, what I got involved in there, what I did then, don't ever do that. I love you too much. Don't follow that path that I followed for a while. We're not Roman Catholics. We don't believe in the confessional. We do not believe that you have to go to any priest other than Jesus to have your sins forgiven. The book of Hebrews is very plain on that point. So you don't have to go to anyone else in this church to confess your sins in order to be forgiven. But rather, as we study passages together and as we live our lives together, as we spend time together, God will provide opportunities for you to share both sins that wreaked havoc on your life in the past. And you can give a testimony that might spare your brother or sister. Or, if it's the right opportunity, sins that you're struggling with right now. That may teach the others in that room a lesson and help them. Don't fear what others might think as you share these things. Let love, love for those around you, motivate your openness. Now, yes, there are some limits to this. Our confession must always be motivated by a genuine desire for personal holiness and a desire to help those around you be holy. In other words, I have seen churches who took James five sixteen confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. I have seen churches take that and begin practices in the church that I think led the church away from holiness rather than towards holiness. I'll just give you one testimony. This is from Nick Batsik. He says this. I think it's right. He said, when I was a new believer... A friend of mine told me about interactions she had with a team that she was a part of on a short-term mission trip. One of the things that she shared that I found to be extremely odd was that the group, made up of both men and women, had committed to coming together every morning to confess ways that they had sinned against each other the day before. That sounded like a complete recipe for disaster to me. I think that I would prefer not to know every time someone thought Nick's a jerk. I really don't like it when he does this or when he does that. He said there may be a need to personally go one on one to a brother or sister privately and confess a bitter spirit or an envious spirit, but to sit in a circle. And to just start airing out the sins of the day before, that seemed entirely unwise. Additionally, if one of the less mature men said something like, I lusted after several of the women here this week, that could potentially lead to an adulterous outbreak. He said, years ago, I heard the story of a minister who had embraced the idea of complete transparency with his congregation in the name of James 5.16, confess your sins to one another. One Sunday, he stood up and said, I have to confess my sin to all of you this morning before the service. I lusted after five of the wives in this congregation. Not only does this lead to potential adultery, it might also attempt, tempt the single women in the congregation who had chalked their singleness up to a lack of physical attraction to sinful despair. Nick says, whatever James has in mind when he says confess your sins to one another, this much we can say. Surely that is not it. So we have to use wisdom. There is so much good that can come when we share honestly and openly about sins in our lives for the purpose of helping you be holy and helping me be holy. But there is potential harm if we're not discerning. And if we're not wise and part of the responsibility of your elders, if Pastor Merle and myself, is to help make sure we're doing this in a wise way, providing the right opportunities for these kinds of conversations. But that said, don't let the warning keep you from the clear teaching of Scripture. We can do our brothers and sisters much good. You can help the people in this room abhor evil that seeks to do them harm. By sharing from your own experiences with sin and giving your own testimony. All right, still with me? Be good? Number three. Number three. We should abhor evil by encouraging and helping one another to put evil to death in our lives. So we should abhor evil by encouraging and helping one another to put evil to death in our lives. So, Maybe we're at care group on Wednesday night, and the passage is talking about unrighteous anger. And as we're talking about sinful anger, someone confesses that this is a sin that's done great harm in their life. And maybe they confess it's a sin they're continuing to work on. They're continuing to struggle with this. Here is how we as a church abhor that evil. We all acknowledge that the seeds of that sin are in all of us. And we pray together about this sin. And then we share together practical strategies that helped us fight this sin. One says, well, I have found that when I am tempted to lose my temper, I count to ten. And that really works for me. And someone says, well, you know, I've, I've struggled with this too. And I've asked God to help me. I've learned that if I take those ten seconds and I spend them in prayer, that that helps me. And someone says, well, I've learned that if I'm really angry, I just need to go walk around the block and pray for, you know, three minutes. And, and so everybody starts sharing how together... We can fight this sin, have a abhor this sin, seek to defeat this sin with the Spirit's help. We share thoughts, biblical truths, promises from God that have helped our hearts grow more patient, more tender, less prone towards anger. Someone says, whenever I feel anger beginning to boil up inside of me, I, I remember this verse. I bring this verse to mind and it helps me stay calm. Now, I said that can happen at a care group. It doesn't have to be a programmed thing, folks. We should be having these conversations all the time. Some of you come out here Saturday and we're you know, working in the yard together. These conversations can happen then. When you're in each other's homes, when you're sharing your chicken tenders at Bojangles, when you're, when, whenever it is, right? These kinds of conversations are happening as we help each other abhor evil. We are soldiers in a battle against sin. We're to fight the good fight for the glory of Jesus' name. But it's not you versus sin in the ring alone. It's all of us as a family, as a church, as the kingdom of God against that sin that's attacking all of us. We can combat together. We can fight together. One practical way of doing this that has been helpful in the lives of some is to have a regular small prayer group. Typically three to four people that maybe you meet with regularly or converse with regularly and you've given them permission to have a kind of greater openness with you than would normally be true of people. You've said, I'm going to be open with you. you be open with me. We're going to have this small group of people. We're going to ask each other hard questions and we're going to pray for each other. I put out on the podium outside as you leave today a set of questions that you can ask in a small group like that. Questions like, are you reading your Bible regularly? What are you reading? How is it impacting your life? Where are you struggling to be obedient? What is a challenge you're having in your walk with God right now? What doubts are you struggling with right now? Are you loving your spouse well? Are you helping your spouse grow in godliness? What kinds of conflict are you experiencing with your kids? Are you praying for your children? Are you being a good friend Are you controlling your tongue? Are you being wise with your money? Are you serving your church body? You can take that list. There's a whole lot more questions out there. And with a small group of people, whom you've given that special permission to be particularly transparent. You can have wonderful, sanctifying conversations. You can help each other share. Well, this is how I've dealt with this in my life. And here's how I've dealt with this in my life. And you learn from each other. And iron sharpens iron. Following Titus 2, if you decide to do something like this, I'd encourage you to have a mix of older ladies, younger ladies, or older men, younger men, right? You got a group of four or five, have two or three older, two or three younger. It can be invaluable. Finally, number four. Number four. We should abhor evil by confronting unrepentant sin in one another's lives. By confronting unrepentant sin in one another's lives. This is where we get the most uncomfortable, and this is where we get the most countercultural. Because everything in our society says just tolerate, tolerate, tolerate. Mind your own business. Who are you to judge that other person? You let them live their life, you live your life. Don't care enough to confront. And yet, look again at verse 9. Because literally in the Greek, the verse says, The love sincere, abhorring the evil. In other words, in the Greek it's clearer that the abhorring of the evil is part of your practice of genuine love for your brother or sister. Meaning, I cannot love you while turning a blind eye to sin in your life, I cannot love you while tolerating something that's doing you harm. If I see that there is a raccoon on your head, and it is clawing at you, and it is causing you energy, and it is causing you to bleed, but you're walking around as if everything's okay, it is not love for me to play along. Mount Hermon, there are times when love demands that we gently and tenderly but lovingly confront one another. Galatians 6, verse 1, brothers, if anyone is caught, ensnared, they're caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So the idea here is that there's somebody in the church and the sin has a hold on them. Let's be clear, you're not to confront everybody about every sin, or that's all you would do your entire life. Because there's lots to confront, isn't there? No, Proverbs actually says that it's a glory to overlook sin. We are to be patient with one another. We are to bear many wrongs from one another without speaking a word. You, I come to you and, and I say something that just it didn't, it didn't come out right. It's, you know Maybe I was having a bad morning. It had a little more harshness to it than it should have. It is your glory to just overlook that and, and vice versa. Because we, we understand. We know We should be willing to overlook sins that we know our brothers and sisters are actively hating and opposing. If a a fellow church member is 30 minutes late to a gathering you had planned together and you're sitting there waiting, it's been 30 minutes, and you're like, my time's being wasted, right? And they're not keeping their word about when you said you're going to meet, but you know this is something that person's working on. You know this is something that this person is trying to, to get better at. Well, then just forgive them and move on. Don't we'll make a big deal about it. Or if somebody in the church speaks a terse word to you and, and you realize, you know what? They've had a really rough week. That's, you don't need to confront them about that. You understand. We should confront sins when we see that they are taking hold of a person, becoming habitual in a person, and when the other person doesn't seem to be acknowledging it, hating that sin, working to defeat that sin. Most importantly, love demands that we confront sin in each other's lives when it is presumptuous sin. If I ever say to you, I know that what I'm doing is wrong, but I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. You must confront me because that is blatant and that is presumptuous sin. I cannot be a faithful follower of Jesus while declaring Jesus says this and I know it, but I'm going to do that. That's dangerous territory. We also must confront sin in one another when we see it's harming others in the body or setting a bad example for those who are younger in the faith. So maybe someone's a brand new Christian and they've cursed their whole life. They've cursed like a sailor their whole life. And now that they've come to Christ, they, they know their language needs to change, but it's hard for them Cursing has been second nature to them since they were young. If I'm having a conversation with that person and a curse word or two is spoken, but I know that person is working on this, I am not going to say a word. Because I know he's working on it. But if that person is standing in front of a group of our children and the cursing continues, that's different, see? We might have to take that person aside and say, look... I know you're working on this. When you're in front of these young ones, you've got to be blood earnest about this. You've got to be even more careful. We really want you to to be careful not to have a negative impact on, on these kids. So if sin seems to have a hold on one of us and we're belittling it and not repenting of it, or if sin in one of us is causing us to bring harm to the lives of others in the body, we must confront it. How? Following the principles of Matthew 18. You go to the person alone first. If they won't listen, you bring two or more church members with you as witnesses. All is done in love. All is done because you care about this person and you genuinely want to help them. The person still refuses to acknowledge the sin, then that's a time to bring the pastors in to help And ultimately, if the person still refuses to follow Jesus, says, I know what Jesus says, and I'm choosing to do the opposite anyway. Ultimately, love demands they be removed from the membership of the church. It's the ultimate wake up call. It's the ultimate last ditch effort of love to say, we believe your soul's in jeopardy. Wake up. Putting a person outside the church is something that nobody ever enjoys doing, but it's only done to show someone how deadly serious their sin is. And in doing so, every other person in that church is taught how terrible that sin is. And to abhor that evil. We don't have time this morning to go more into that. We've preached on Matthew 18 and the practice of discipline before. If you have questions, we can talk about it on Wednesday night. But let's recognize that these practices, admonishment, church discipline, they were commanded us of us by Jesus as acts of love. These help us to abhor evil as God abhors evil and to pursue good. So finally, may we all trust and love the Lord Jesus Christ, who is not only purely good, but he works to save sinners. And to make every one of us who believes on him blameless and spotless on the last day. And Mount Hermon, I'll just close with this. Aren't you looking forward to the day when evil will be no more? This life is a battle. The life to come, there will be no battle. Because there will be no sin to fight. And we praise Jesus for that. And we look forward to that day. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.